Please stand as you're able for the reading of today's New Testament lesson from the book of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 17 to 30. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where do you want us to make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man, and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus direct, had directed them, and they prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, he took his place with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they became greatly distressed and began to say to him, one after another, Surely not I, Lord. He answered, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. Judas, who betrayed him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. He replied, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not, never again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they have sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks be to God indeed. And thank you, Raul, for reading our scripture lesson this morning on this, the second Sunday of the season that we call Lent. We're grateful also. Adam, thank you for your prayer this morning and to Thomas and praise team and our production staff and all who are with us today helping us to share the witness of God's Word. This morning, we're continuing our Lenten series that we're calling Passion, and you may notice from the slide the little pictures on each word that follow along with the Scripture each week during these seven weeks together, six weeks of Lent, and then finally the seventh week, Easter Sunday, which we are planning uh, to have a mass service at Brentwood Academy at the football field on Sunday, April the 4th, and you'll hear more about that in my State of the Church uh, words in the coming days, but we look forward to sharing that special day together in our Easter celebration. So we're calling our series Passion, and we're focusing on two chapters of Scripture. So if you want to read ahead, we're only looking at Matthew chapters 26 and 27. We're focusing in these 40 days on Matthew's understanding of the final week in the life of Jesus, the week that we call Passion Week or Holy Week. It does seem important to Matthew that we understand that the Passion of Jesus happened during the Passover, which is also referred to in the Scripture as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It is a major, it is the major Jewish holiday 
which would last an entire week, seven to eight days. It was the celebration of the deliverance, the commemoration of the exodus of the Hebrew slaves from Egyptian bondage. It's called Passover because of the tenth and final plague that finally softened hard-hearted Pharaoh. After all the plagues, after the frogs, after the flies, after the gnats, that would have done it for me, after the locust and the hail and the darkness and all of that, the tenth and final plague comes. The death angel arrives and takes Egypt's firstborn sons while passing over the Hebrew homes where above the frame, above the lentil of their doors, they had sprinkled, they had smeared the blood of the sacrificial lamb. Thus the name Passover. Unleavened bread reminds us that the chosen ones, the Hebrew children, left Egypt in a huge hurry. In other words, they didn't wait for the bread to rise. Indeed, they baked it without the yeast. And still today, a part of the anticipation of our Jewish friends of the commemoration of Passover includes the family rummaging the house, ridding the household of all leaven. There was an expectation that the Messiah would appear during the Passover. And so Matthew is very specific in his account of the Passion in tying the events of Holy Week to the celebration of Passover. Jesus had just given instructions about the arrangements for the meal regarding the time and the place. And notice in the Scripture, he also makes clear that his time is near. What does that mean? What time? The time of his suffering. The time of his sacrifice. The time that he will be taken up on the cross. And we said last week, and you'll see this all throughout Matthew's account, the cross does not come as a surprise to Jesus. He knew it. In fact, according to Matthew, he predicted it no less than four times, first in chapter 16, then in chapter 17, again in chapter 21, and again finally in chapter 26. Jesus knows what's coming, and he embraces the cross. He will not retreat. He will not back down in disobedience. And neither should we as disciples ever be shocked by the fact that discipleship comes with a cross. It comes with the frock. Jesus never hid that. Sometimes I have forgotten to read the fine print, but Jesus never hid the fact that if you're going to follow him, it means assuming a cross. And what does that mean? It means that you will voluntarily take on the burden of someone else, not just a friend, but even an enemy, that you will assume the burdens, that you will share the suffering of others. Jesus said it, whoever comes after me, you have to deny yourself, pick up a cross, and follow me. Matthew wants us to know that the passion of Christ takes place within the Passover. The disciples are given instructions by Jesus. They go, they make the arrangements for the meal, and Jesus takes his place at the table with the twelve. And this is where it gets really interesting. 
To say that the conversation that night was disturbing, well, that's kind of an understatement, isn't it? I don't know how it was with you in being raised or reared in your family, but in my family, I I was always taught that when the extended family comes together for a celebrative meal, it is best not to talk about politics and religion. I mean, you should have the blessing, right? You should have the invocation. Bless the food and bless those who are there. But after the prayer, it is best to steer clear of those two subjects. But it's interesting that the Seder meal, the Passover, was born of politics and religion. In fact, the menu actually telegraphs the political situation in Egypt The egg represents the sacrifice. The lamb bone represents the sacrificial Passover lamb. The matzah, the unleavened bread that you see, represents the quick exit from Egypt. The bitter herbs signified the harsh nature of slavery. The karaset, that is the apple, the nut, the cinnamon mixture, represented the mortar that was used by the slaves to bake the bricks. And the salt water bowl represented their tears. The red wine symbolized their liberation, their deliverance. And so what you see on the Passover table is that every ingredient, every course had significance. So you can't really avoid politics and religion at this table. It's in the food. They not only talked about it, they ate it. And while they're eating the meal, Jesus brings up a sore subject, betrayal. Somebody's going to break rank. There's a mole in the movement. There's a Benedict Arnold at the table, a turncoat, And Jesus, never one to dodge the issue, names the elephant in the upper room. One of you will betray me, he says. Now, let me say it again. Jesus seems to always know what's going to happen before it ever occurs, though it is important to note and to understand that foreknowledge does not necessarily mean foreordination. Let me explain that. The fact that Jesus knows betrayal is coming doesn't mean that Jesus caused betrayal to happen. And of course, these disciples are greatly distressed. Who wouldn't have been? To name an elephant like that in a Passover meal in an upper room, they were, <laughs> they were deeply grieved. And their response is telling. Matthew says they respond to Jesus one after the other by saying, surely not I, Lord. First three words that we learn as little children are the words, it wasn't me. Adam, it won't be long before Jane Bradley learns those words after mama and daddy, it wasn't me. Now, the interesting thing about their denial is it doesn't have an exclamation point beside it. You notice that? It's got a question mark. That's interesting. So they're not really making a declaration. They're asking a question. Surely not I, Lord. I'm not so sure they're so sure. (laughs) 
In other words, it's not me, is it? That's kind of an ambivalent denial, if you ask me. That's in Matthew. If you turn over to Luke's parallel, Luke's version is a little different in their response. Luke 23, they don't say, is it I? They look at each other and they say, who is it? Let's find out who the guilty party is and give them the business and lower the boom. Now, quite frankly, that's more often our response. Let's get to the bottom of the situation so that I can point the guilty finger because after all, everybody needs a scapegoat, yes, sure. But in Matthew, it's almost like they're saying, it's me, (laughs) it's probably me, it could be me. They had pretty much learned to trust whatever Jesus said because everything he said up to this point happens, so their denial is actually nuanced with their own apprehension. Now, I want to pause it there for just a moment and say that I think this humanizes discipleship. It gives me a chance and you a chance because I, for one, I appreciate their ambiguity. I have to confess to you that I am sometimes suspicious of those who are a little too sure of themselves. And I'm not dismissing or denying the need for self-confidence. That's a wonderful thing. But I've noticed that sometimes self-confidence leads to self-righteousness. And I've read through the Scripture, and it seems to me that self-righteousness is the premier enemy of the gospel. In fact, John Mark Green said it tongue-in-cheek, the self-righteous scream judgments against others in order to hide the noise of skeletons dancing in their own closets. Sometimes my self-righteousness leads to arrogance. Peter was arrogant. He was pretty confident, wasn't he? Because in the same chapter that Raul read for us, just a few verses later, you remember what he said to Jesus after the betrayal announcement? Look, Jesus, if I have to die with you, I will, but I will never deny you. Never say never. But he did deny Jesus three times, and Jesus foresaw that too. The disciples as a whole seemed pretty sure about Jesus. In fact, notice again, in their response to his announcement, they refer to him as Lord, so they're pretty sure about who Jesus is, but they're not always so sure of themselves because they knew, as we know, that we are capable of faithfulness, of loyalty, but we are also capable of relapsing and backsliding, forsaking, and turning our back. We're capable of that. Now, there's a slight but significant variation in Judas's response to the announcement of betrayal. You have to look closely. It's easy to miss. While 11 of the 12 disciples refer to Jesus as Lord, surely not I, Lord, Judas addresses Jesus as Rabbi, surely not me, Rabbi. And there's a subtle but profound difference in the way they address Jesus. It's a different thing to call Jesus Lord 
and to call Jesus teacher. It is ironic, but when you read Matthew, most of the time the people who oppose Jesus refer to him as rabbi, teacher. And here Judas addresses him in the same way, and now Judas sounds more like an enemy than a friend. It may be, and I'm just speculating here, this isn't in the Bible, this is the Revised Chapel version. It may be that Judas is disappointed with Jesus. Have you ever been disappointed with Jesus? Maybe Judas, like some of us, didn't like the direction that the movement was headed. I think Judas wanted more of a a sword-wielding Messiah, and he saw a suffering servant And so, to refer to the Lord as rabbi is indicative of a faith that is faltering. All 12 give a weak, ambivalent rebuttal because they know themselves. As a whole, they believe in Jesus, but not so much in themselves, and they're not ready yet to follow Jesus as far as a cross. And when the going gets tough, sometimes the tough get gone. Well, though the address is different, the way they address Jesus, the response is the same. You can't be talking about me. I I wish my husband was here to hear this sermon. It's meant for, I wish my wife, it can't be me. You can't be talking about me. And then Jesus says, the one who dips his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. Now, remember the ingredients to the Passover meal. What is the bowl? It's the salt water. It's part of the Seder meal. It contains that salty water that symbolizes what? Our sweat and tears in enslavement. And Judas dips his hand into that bowl. But so do the others. They They all betrayed him. They all let him down. They all deserted him in the shadow of a cross. And so have I. And so have you. Part of what it means, I think, to be authentic in our discipleship is to recognize and confess our own ambivalence when it comes to being faithful And sometimes when we hear of someone else's betrayal and disloyalty, we just point the finger instead of becoming introspective and being honest. And I tell you, it doesn't take two seconds for me to find that in myself. But here's what I love about Jesus. Here's the good news. In spite of the disciples' denial... In spite of their betrayal, what does Jesus do? Sock it to them. (laughs) Rub their nose in it. Blame and shame. Of course not. He feeds them. He nurtures them. He takes the unleavened bread, the matzah, and he blesses it and he breaks it. And then he turns to them and said, this is me. This is myself. This is my body given for you. And then he takes that cup, the cup of deliverance of red wine, and he blesses it. 
And he said, this is me. This is, this is my life's blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins and for many. What is he doing? He's embodying the Seder. He's, pers- he, he's personifying the Passover lamb. And the next afternoon, Good Friday, he will become the means by which these ambivalent companions are delivered from sin and death. In other words, here's the good news. Jesus refuses to define us by our failure. He doesn't dismiss our betrayal, but neither does he define us by our betrayal. He defines us by his love. He feeds us, forgives us, and frees us, and that's our deliverance. That is so Jesus. I want to give you an example, and then I'm finished. I mentioned yesterday in our webinar, it was just a wonderful morning together. Todd Bolsinger, who I mentioned at the outside of the service, outside of the service, was with us. Uh, Todd is a professor at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California. He's a consultant on spiritual adaptive leadership, and he's written a couple of books that I think are must-reads, not just for for clergy people, but, but for everybody, for anybody that attempts to live out our discipleship in, in a pandemic or in the crisis that we've been in. These are, these are must-reads, Canoeing the Mountains and Tempered Resilience. And he was with us yesterday, and he told us a story that I had read in, I think it was in Tempered Resilience, and I want to share this story with you in closing. He said, a while back, I entered an Ironman triathlon. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I'm not sure we have any Ironman triathlon participants here. But he said, I trained for this triathlon for three years. He said, it was on my bucket list. And the triathlon includes two and a half miles swimming, 112 mile bike ride, and 26.2 miles running all in one day. Todd said, it took me 14 hours to do it. And he said, during that time, I I thought I was going to die, and then I was afraid I wouldn't die in the middle of all of that. But he said, I made it. And he said, here's the thing. The night before the race, uh, they had a meal for us, and the host of the meal was was a Catholic nun. Her name, Sister Madonna Buter. I have a picture of Sister Buter, better known as the Iron Nun. Believe it or not, she is a veteran of the Iron Man competition. In fact, in 2012, she became the world record holder in her age group as the oldest person, get this, at age 82 to finish the triathlon, 82. She's 90 years of age today, and she's still going strong. And Todd said, as we were having our meal, pregame meal together, she was asked to pray and then just say a word to all of us who had come to run the race. He said, I'll never forget what she said. Her message was very succinct, very simple, and this is what she said. Tomorrow is going to be a hard day. Some of you are going to get discouraged. Some of you are going to want to quit. 
Some of you may get injured and you're not going to be able to finish. And things may not go your way tomorrow, even though you've trained for months and years. But she said, I want you to remember one thing. You were loved into existence. You were loved into existence. Todd said, it's hard to throw in the towel when you know that. Even when you're unsure of yourself, you can trust that. It's been a marathon lately, hasn't it? We've been running on empty, many of us. We've been running with pain. But what keeps us going, in spite of the struggle, in spite of our ambivalence, in spite of the hurt and the frustration and the distrust and the distress, is the awareness that we have been loved into existence and that love never fails. Love never gives up. It feeds us, forgives us, frees us, and delivers us so that we can be faithful to the finish. May it be so for you, for me, for us, for Jesus' sake. Amen.